Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, listeners. It's me, Jinx Monsoon, here with some more hijinks with me, Jinx Monsoon. Today, my guest, Solomon Giorgio, compares and contrasts his work on SpongeBob SquarePants and Shrill. We also talk about the trials and tribulations of being super tall and super queer and what it takes to play that long game in the industry. That is Hollywood. All today on Hijinks. So hunker down and sink your teeth in to some new Hijinks. Forever. Dog. Hello everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today we are joined by comedian, writer, and pretty person, Solomon Giorgio. Hi Solomon. Hi Jinx. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm uh, just, you know, existing on a Friday night. It was a Friday day. I don't, whatever time it's decided to be. Friday (laughs) day. Friday day. (laughs) I'm well. How are you? I'm I'm decent. I'm decent. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about um, your persona. You recently tweeted... As a middle-aged queer of color, I know I come off as jaded and cynical, (laughs) but please understand that underneath my icy disposition is a much meaner person. (laughs) (laughs) Would you care to comment further on this tweet? Oh, to be perfectly honest, that's actually probably a fabrication of some sort. I definitely (laughs) am much nicer in real life. I just don't want people to know that. (laughs) Yeah, there's power in um, the distance you build between people. It's just, it's a good, it's a good place to be, especially if you're like sort of like, especially with a, a fan base in comedy, like, like they just get like, just in general, any fan base, they just kind of get a little obsessive and sort of think they have more ownage to your persona. And I'm just like, no, 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 my, no. <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> I feel like I've been doing a lot of um, soul searching lately when it comes to the commenters online, you know, it's an it's an eternal struggle as a as a public persona and social media being a necessary evil. You know, I've always struggled with, you know, everyone says don't read the comments. And then here I am scrolling through them. And then the mean ones pop out more than the nice ones. And then I find myself responding to trolls and then it's playing into what they are attempting to get out of you, you know, a response and some kind of argument that they can then, 
wear as a feather in their cap. (laughs) (laughs) I I understand that. And I think I come at it at a different way because whenever I do get trolls and do get people mean commenting on me, I um, remind myself that I am better than them in every possible way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a wonderful really, mentality like it's truly i i like i don't like i i try i try to definitely i'm like I'm, i feel like i'm always an equal and loving person but if somebody is going to come for me a stranger then i obviously am already better than them so it's just you kind of have to play between the two because like yeah you don't have a right to say that but also i should also be ready to i should also not hurt be so easily hurt uh and, and it's kind of like you have to f- it's a dance and it's a constant dance and it's never ending because you're in the public eye and people will say, say things to you for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of your life. You know, it, the only difference is, you know, is now there's a place to see what they're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about it's not that people are, are more critical now. It's just that they have a place to voice that criticism. Oh, yeah. And that's my big question right now is we've kind of accepted that we've given room to this this access to us. And like I said, social media is a necessary evil. But then it's like when people are like, well, you should be prepared for these comments. Well, you should be prepared for people to hate you. It's like, yes, and why are you fighting so hard to have the right to be... Like, that seems like it's on you. Like, if you're fighting hard to maintain a place where you can be an ignorant asshole then, like, I don't really have time for you, you know? <laughs> like, I don't really yeah. have time for these justifications for why you're allowed to be a jackass, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's one of those things where it's like, there's so much art you can consume that doesn't involve me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a exactly. whole world of it for you to go and enjoy and never even bother looking at me, seeing me, hearing me do anything. Like, it's like, it's it's, to them, it's just like, it doesn't make sense. It's like, you can avoid any performer if you like, it is not that difficult unless you're like trying to avoid like a, a, a TLC song at CVS. You're going to that's that's difficult. I get it. But <laughs> absolutely. Do you know want to know my mantra? Um, this is my blanket mantra when it comes to the comments. And it's helped me a lot. Um, every opinion may be valid, but not every opinion is equal, you know, because. I might have uh, I might have ideas of what someone should do uh, health wise. I might have I always use this analogy. If I have a funky mole on my back, I'm going to go to a doctor to get that mole checked out, because if I go downstairs to the concierge of my hotel I'm at, in any given city, that person might have an opinion on the mole on my back, but that doesn't mean that opinion means anything because they're not a doctor who specializes (laughs) in that. And I think the same thing goes with comedy and with drag. And I see people like, oh, this was bad. And it's like, actually, where's your where's your uh, credentials and your authority on the subject? You know, now I know we've just uh, talked about social media out of nowhere but let's talk about um (laughs) let's talk about your career in case anyone listening doesn't know um you are a writer on the show high fidelity on hulu as well as the show shrill on hulu starring ad bryant now i haven't seen high fidelity but i've watched every episode of shrill um, I absolutely love that show. Um, I'm friends with Lindy West, who um, who wrote the source material. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting for me um, 
spending, you know, 12 years living in Seattle um, and knowing the references that Lindy is drawing from in Seattle. But the show itself is set in Portland, yes, <laughs> um, which is where I was born and raised and now live once more. So it's this weird balance of um, <laughs> like, I know this is referring to Seattle, but my brain starts believing that this happened in Portland. And I'm like, Portland doesn't have that, you know, but it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch. It's um, it's kind of it sort of shows you the differences between the two cities sometimes because it's it is there's so many similarities and yet so many differences between the two (laughs) (laughs) that's there's so many amazing performances on shrill not only ad bryant but of course um john cameron mitchell and patty harrison really stand out to me as two two very strong performers on the show but really um the whole ensemble is amazing there's so many wonderful characters being portrayed and they feel very grounded in real life, even though the situations can sometimes be uh, (laughs) larger than life. Um, What's the experience been like um, writing for Shrill? Um, It's been, I I wasn't there for the first season. I came in on the second season. I just, and I also, we just finished writing on the third season a little bit, a few months back, um, third and final. Um, And it's like, I've known Lindy, I probably would say, right when I started comedy, so about like 13 years ago. Um, and so like, I've, so that's like, I was brought in with my knowledge of Seattle and my knowledge of where Lenny's history. And like, I was even, I was even mentioned in the source material cause I was <laughs> her, her roommate at one point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was, it was kind of, it was sort of fun to be brought into this world, especially when it was established a little bit and kind of add my own personal insight from my experiences in, in the Seattle scene and then kind of also add my personal stories and just have fun with those characters because they're so, they're such, they're a combination of so many people that I, that I know personally yeah. and... <laughs> But also, you can take you can take um, you don't you don't have to follow any strict rules because it's not following an exact autobiography. It's just yeah. it's a retelling of uh, Lindy's what life uh, through a different character and through eighty and eighty and Lindy are two of the most amazing forces of nature that I've ever had. It's like it's like eighty especially is like just the most kind, hardworking, polite, sweet. Like she was working uh, in the writers' room. She was uh, working SNL and on shrill uh, as, as they were both coinciding and she just was like 60, 70 hour work week and just unfazed, Uh, not, 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 not showing any, any frustration with the fact that she is working a hundred (laughs) hours. Yeah. Do you, um, this is kind of a difficult question to ask and you might not have an answer for it, but um, it's going to segue into what I'd like (laughs) to talk to you about next. So I'm going to ask it. Do you feel that because there are fewer opportunities for large women in Hollywood, that you talk about AD being polite and professional, do you feel like that she has extra pressure on herself to take on that responsibility to be polite, to be like, you know, this uh, beacon of light? Because if she was difficult in any way, <laughs> the those those fewer opportunities for someone like her might close up. Um, I feel that's like, I don't want to speak for her personal experience mm-hmm. because it's, it's a very, like, I think we just dis- did discuss that. And that's sort of um, a lot of the elements of the show is kind of discussing the pressure that her, that she has a large woman in the world has to endure and just kind of, but also like, I feel like she has a very strong 
power about her to mm-hmm. like to like to hold her own ground. Um, but yeah, I think I think compromising herself um, is just sort of one of the most uh, terrible and noxious things in an industry that's run yeah. by straight cis white men, and that's <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I kind of ask is because you know we see it reflected in the writing and in her performance of the character that when you are someone from a demographic other than straight, cis, white, male, um, the pressures on you are higher. You, I feel like you're given fewer chances to make mistakes because people just have le- uh, people in the industry, the powers that be, seem to have less patience for someone from a specific demographic than they might for a straight white cis male. And um, that's what I really love about Shrill is the diversity in the stories that are being told in Shrill. You have stories of lots of LGBTQ plus representation, um, as well as uh, queer people of color. There's trans representation in the show, um, which I was especially kind of excited by because it was one of those moments where there is a character on the show who is trans and it only came up kind of in passing conversation. There wasn't an episode about like, here's her coming out as trans or here's the big deal we're going to make about this person being trans. And I find that kind of de-escalating that conversation and making it more commonplace and more uh, conversational and kind of, uh, um, what am I trying to say? The fact that it wasn't a huge production about this person's transness to me is the next step in representation where a person can just be who they are on the show and represent this character without having to have the whole um, three episode arc about their transness. Yeah. Um, I think that's also, yeah, that's, that's really important because, like, I feel like when, especially with our coming out, like any coming out story, it becomes um, so the central part of the character and then they're just downplayed and kind yes. of just phased out to the side. And Patty's character doesn't <laughs> deserve better than that. And she is such an amazing performer and and the character is so fun to write for. And that was, it's... Like, it's like, in like even, like, just making it as something that happens in passing is just much this it's more fun writing uh for character without focusing yeah yeah like i don't like the kid kid, no one just walks around just screaming i'm trans over and over and over again (laughs) exactly (laughs) i find that those big overwrought drawn out explanations of people's identity that's done more for the straight white audience you know and when you allow the character to be more true to life you're saying we're done catering to your ignorance on the situation. And if you're confused by this, maybe go do some research rather than like complaining that the show doesn't explain it or spell it out to you, you know, because it's not, I don't think, I think we're past the point of having to explain everything to the straight white audience. And and now we're creating work that is for us, by us, you know, as queer people yeah. from different demographics. Well, it's just, it's assuming that we have no relatability unless we over explain our existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not true at all. We're very relatable. There's lots of things that we do because we're human beings that people can relate to. And yeah. it should be, it should be, it should be written that way. I think that's the great, the best way to write any queer character is sort of, um, is trying to find something else. 
other yeah. than the the constant trope that we're presented with over and over again. I've only worked in like a handful of rooms, and this is one of like this is probably my top top uh, experience because it's it was such a space where everyone was attentive and caring uh, and understanding and wanting to especially. Like eighty was like gung ho about making sure that uh, Fran's character, the character Fran, her roommate, was just like also just as important, uh, and also had had its had her own agency, and it was very that was, and it was just so fun to write. That's the thing is that these characters are absolutely fun to write when you can just get to do whatever you think they would do, and actually, yeah. <laughs> and tell the stories that of my own experiences, my experiences with other queer people, my, and it's just, just to be able to like have that kind of freedom. And like, I specifically wrote the episode about her, uh, going to her, uh, cousin's wedding, mm-hmm. uh, in season two. And that was fantastic. episode. <laughs> it made me feel good. Uh, it was one of those things where it's almost, uh, she gets, there's a conversation with her mother in that, that it was like one of the most, uh, cathartic writing experiences of my life. So I cried while writing it. So. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> What I loved about that is that there were moments where it was like 80, 80s character was shocked, you know, like, oh, my God, I can't believe you and your mother got into that fight. And 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 uh, she says that wasn't a fight. That's just how <laughs> we communicate, you know. <laughs> and I think that's a really great way. Like, it's an example of coming from different backgrounds means you have different understanding of things. And I think that trauma and uh, trauma is relative, you know, (laughs) it's relative (laughs) to your situation. So what may offend a straight white cis female might not offend uh, a queer person of color because they've had to build that armor throughout their life. My mother (laughs) hasn't been nice to me in 38 years. So... (laughs) I know she loves me, but <laughs> <laughs> I um I I just you know congratulations and kudos because <laughs> I think I think this show is such a perfect example of the difference of when something is written by the people that it's for. You know, it's written by people uh, of varying sizes, varying backgrounds, um, different identities, and it's so obvious these days. I think, um, to tell the difference between something that was written by us and for us versus something that was written by someone who has a very narrow perspective of what life is like (laughs) as a queer person within the the various rainbows that we represent, you know? Um, It's easy to tell when a straight cis white man is writing Mm -hmm. a queer story. And I think our community has lost all patience for that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's well. sometimes it's also those, it's also the gay cis white males that push yeah. those narratives. Well, that's very, <laughs> that's very good to point out. Absolutely. <laughs> Was the transition from stand-up comedy to writing pretty natural for you? Have you always been doing both? Um, it, um, was this a shift in your life? <laughs> um, it's sort of because stand-up comedy is something that always happens at night. Uh, yeah. Like if I was doing stand-up at two in the afternoon during the workday, then I'm not, I'm not, I'm not at the right place. <laughs> I'm not in the right career. <laughs> um, 
but I like for me, uh, like I've always wanted to do stand up since I was little. Uh, writing just became something that I naturally like is naturally a part of stand up. Uh, and um, I sort of just like I was always good at writing, but I was never great at presenting what I wrote. Um, and it's like being a little immigrant kid and just trying to figure things out. Um, and so I was never intentionally funny uh, until I was like, I probably think it was 25 when I got like fully committed to comedy. And then I was like, there's no way I'm going to become successful at this in any way, shape or form. <laughs> and I, that's something. And I thought, and with writing, I was like, I was like, love to have been a TV writer furthest away from my mind. I was like, that's an yeah. impossible dream. How dare you think that? Um, then I just stand up started going really well. I started going, doing more shows, getting out of town, moving to LA. And once the opportunities started showing up and I was like, oh, okay, I guess, <laughs> I guess. Um, so yeah, it's like, I, I just, yeah, it's sort of like I did every, I did all the work to get here. I just never intended it to ever happen. <laughs> yeah. No, I, um, I think that's, I think the best thing you can do for yourself as an aspiring entertainer, um, whatever form of entertainment, whether it's writing or stand-up or drag or acting, I think the best thing an artist can do is assume they're not going to be successful. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you go into it assuming that you're going to absolutely knock it out of the park every time and opportunities are just going to come flooding your way... Um, the the heartbreak is so much deeper and it's I, I I see people I don't know I see people get into entertainment for the sole purpose of being famous and to me there's no greater perversion of being an artist than to yeah. do it <laughs> do it for the sole purpose of being famous I think I started art school when I went to college for acting. I started with the intention of coming out of art school ready to become famous. And through art school, I think the best lesson I learned was what I actually want to be is an effective artist because f fame is whatever without a mission statement, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it means it's a, it's sort of a consequence uh, and you have to choose what action you want that consequence to come from. So, yeah. and I think I, I think I see the best examples of like um, uh, detrimental fame um, <laughs> with social media presences, YouTubers, these people who kind of like um, got into it for the fame rather than for you know the art of it or for the message that they. If if you go into it without a mission statement and then you become famous, we're kind of just watching someone be famous for the sake of being famous. And that interests me 0%. <laughs> I always talk about the double-edged sword of drag becoming popular is that, you know, in when I started drag at 15 years old, 18 years ago, um, drag was not lucrative. Uh, drag didn't make you popular. Drag made you next to undateable. You know, <laughs> there were a lot of consequences that came with drag and you stuck to it because you were passionate about it, not because there was a TV show that could make you famous. And while I think it's a true mark of progress that there is a TV show that can make you famous as a drag queen, I, I think that there is something being missed 
um, from not putting in the years of crawling on your hands and knees and dive bars, getting paid in sweaty, crumpled ones, you know, (laughs) performing for audiences of two people, you know, there's a lot of learning that comes with that. And that's where I got my drag education. And I don't see like a relative synthesis Mm -hmm. for that. I think... Something fell apart. Just fell apart. (laughs) (laughs) Suction cups just came undone. That is the drag gods telling me to stop talking. It didn't break. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because no, I I I I recall I was going to drag shows uh, back then uh, (laughs) in the early aughts, uh, and like I think I yeah I remember I feel like I I dated a couple people who just like just dabbled in drag, and they just were just they were too afraid to even like be in drag around me when I'm like, Oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> like this is really an issue. And it was, and it's, and it's probably, it's definitely in a bit better place than it is. And I think, I think because of the internet, there are people who can gain more fame very quickly, but I also feel like there are some Queens that are not, don't have it together in their first <laughs> go. So they have to go into those bars. They have to do those two people shows. And mm-hmm. I think they're still out there. I think, I think <laughs> it's still an option. Uh, and yeah, I think yeah, there's there are definitely shortcuts. There's more shows, but at the end of the day, it's the cream still rises to the top. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really great way of putting it. You know, I I used to have some um I used to have mixed feelings because ultimately I'm very aware that I took a shortcut, a huge shortcut, you know. I was on the long, slow plotting path for my goals. Uh, drag race provided me a shortcut. But then I kind of pat myself on the back for the years of the. <laughs> the I don't really think drag race like, is a shortcut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was. A oh, huge you place endeavor. yourself in the most in nervous, <laughs> high tension situation uh, and put on national TV while while enduring it. <laughs> I don't know if that's a shortcut. I would if I was on drag race, I would last. Um, five seconds, uh, and I would <laughs> be under the table crying. But you have years of crawling on your hands and knees <laughs> yes. in the dive bars. You know, I always use that that term, <laughs> crawling on my hands and knees, because Chad Michaels, <laughs> I think, said that once. Chad Michaels, who you know was one of the older contestants yeah. when she went into Drag Race, and and she did two different seasons, and um, you know, she won All Stars, and it was like um, Chad Michaels had worked in drag for a couple decades at that point and absolutely remembers the days before drag was popular. And she always brings that up. Like I crawled on my hands and (laughs) knees to get to where I am. And um, I think, I think that education in, in doing it when it was unpopular is just, I want to know what the new equivalent for that is you know because nowadays it's like you get on instagram you get a bunch of followers and um and you might make it onto drag race and then become a famous drag queen but where's your years of of working in the dive bars well i think (laughs) i think there's sort of um like like with stand-up with stand-up's been going well on for a while and when i came in um it's still like there was a set road you can follow Mm-hmm. Uh, to gain certain access to comedy, but it was not, you don't get to maintain your voice. You don't get to maintain your style. You have to sort of like, these are the spaces I can perform in and I have to sort of compromise the kind of jokes I can do and the material that mm-hmm. I want to do. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's what essentially is going to happen with drag. It's like there are queens that are going to be like, this is my drag style. This is the way I want to do it. And I can't follow this path to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, or they, or they just like, I'll get on the show, but I still want to cultivate my specific brand. And I think that's just, I think it's just, what's like, I think it's going to set out like any, any form of entertainment that gain, that gains notoriety and, and gets more and gets bigger and more popular is that it essentially there's a boom. Uh, there was a comedy boom many times mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. and now there's a drag boom and it's going to fizzle out. <laughs> and cause it's yeah, that money isn't available for everything. That's the thing. Yeah. That's what's going to happen is that money's going to be like, no, no more. <laughs> <laughs> only, well, only people that are amazing will get it. And then the rest of the Queens will be like, we have to fight to the death to get to that level. Yeah. <laughs> we have to I, get um, on our hands and knees on the floor at the bar. And get our <laughs> at the dive bar, accepting <laughs> our crumpled, sweaty ones from the two people in the audience. <laughs> um, I think that they're, you know, I've learned so much about fan culture that I didn't know. You know, like I've been a hardcore fan of many things, you know, video games and uh, certain movies and TV shows and stuff. But I'm also like older uh so i never really like expressed my my fangirl side through social media the way that younger people do and i i i think one thing i realized is that young fans um when they're so obsessed with one thing like drag race they forget that like everything that's happening with drag has happened with everything else before, you know, like the fact that there was a boom and a fizzle and now, and now, you know, there's counter arguments and now like people have really high expectations for drag and, and all this stuff. I mean, that happens with every art form that becomes popular. And I think sometimes the fan base of, of, of drag, uh, they seem to, (laughs) think that this is very unique to drag you know like that um no other art form has ever been through these stages of evolution before you yeah know? well that's because they weren't they weren't at a gay bar in 2003 uh <laughs> they were just birth <laughs> yeah it used to be the only way you could follow drag was yeah. to go to the gay dive bars where drag happened no, and i now remember it's so accessible <laughs> yeah. i remember watching you when i was in in seattle and uh i think <laughs> the first time i ever saw you perform was uh when you opened for alexis mateo uh <gasps> after season three oh, that was actually oh that was such a great <laughs> at our line, place at our place and i said yes to the gig immediately because um you know uh, here's the other thing is the the ripples of drag race do extend out to the uh, community for better or for worse, you know? I think nowadays it's hard for drag not to be influenced by drag race in one way or another because it's either influenced by the fact that you get ideas from it or you hold yourself to the standards of drag race or you go in the exact opposite direction and say, if you want a show that's not drag race, we've got you covered. But for a local queen, you know, having not yet been on Drag Race, opening for a Drag Race yes. girl was one of the best gigs you could possibly get, you know, because you're you've got a great huge audience. And I was local to Seattle, but I felt like very few people knew about me yet. And opening for Alexis Mateo was a big introduction to my own community. Yeah, well, it was also like it was a very weird way to see because uh, I've been to drag shows before, uh, and it would be like, oh, the drag, it'd be it's usually hosting the night, 
yeah. whatever the event was really. And the, the queen was usually secondary to the actual evening itself. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, uh, and this was the first time I was like, I'm sitting down and we're going to sit and watch an entire drag show. And I think that was sort of, <laughs> That kind of culture was very, like, it very rarely happened <laughs> in yeah. gay bars, especially. So it was, uh, it was definitely a nice little revelation to be like, oh, we're gonna sit down and enjoy drag, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. not sideline them. <laughs> <laughs> Did you um, have you had moments similar to that as a comedian? Have you had moments where you opened for a big name? Um, uh, I, I don't know as much about the world of stand-up comedy, but I feel like they're, I think drag and stand-up are, mm-hmm. drag, stand-up, and porn all have a lot of intersection, <laughs> yes. you know? <laughs> um, well, the thing is with with drag, drag is very dynamic. Um, like, it's it's one of those things where I, it's, you have to be bad at it <laughs> to, to get... <laughs> An to audience get to, to get, yeah. well, like, or like to even get an audience to boo at you. Like, that's very, like, it's like... <laughs> And with stand up, oh, I it's, see what you're saying. You can you tell one, be... yeah, you yeah. have to be like with stand up, you have to be as you have to be really good when you're opening for someone. And you have to, like, it's like, it's, there's no training ground uh, when you're opening for bigger names. Like, you have to be at a better place. Uh, and so it was, so it was like, yeah, that was always, I was always terrified when I was opening for a bigger name. Like, I was more afraid doing that. I'd rather been at a smaller show. Uh, than opening for the bigger names in my first uh, few years of, co- of comedy because it was just like that's just so much anxiety. Um, the nerves were just too much, and obvious. And I'm a nervous pooper, and I just really <laughs> uh, you were shitting your brains out. <laughs> yeah, so it was like like the those those gigs were they definitely like weren't as as bad as I they were in my head. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, they actually were actually pretty great, but it wasn't until after the fact. Uh, that I'm like, okay, this is fine. Um, what are some memorable names that you opened for? Oh we know that Jeez. I opened for Alexis Mateo. <laughs> uh, who was your Alexis Mateo? <laughs> oh my! Oh god, my first big names that I opened for. Um, god, I'm trying to remember now because it's been 15 years. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, like uh, Maria Bamford was one like oh, the most memorable ones that I've ever had. I opened she for her. One of my favorite people on the earth. <laughs> uh, it's she's one of my inspirations and uh, and just one and also one of the kindest, sweetest human beings in the world. Like it's she's one of those personas where it's um everyone if she especially if you're a comedian she's like everyone is welcome. Uh, where you're you're all my peers and I'm like that's you shouldn't do that. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> Too many of us are questionable, and you should throw a lot of us away. But <laughs> <laughs> can I um can I tell you my Maria Bamford anecdote? So um I I don't know how many years this was into you know post drag race, but I had um at least enough experiences to know that one thing I hate is you know you're at the airport you're moving from one plane to the other. You don't look good. Uh, you're probably cranky. And then someone comes up to you and goes, oh, can I get a photo? And you you say yes, even though everything inside of you is screaming, how dare you ask me for a photo <laughs> while I just like woke up from my vodka nap on this flight. Uh, <laughs> and yet, and yet, when I saw Maria Bamford get off the same flight as me once, I ran after her. (laughs) 
I threw all my instincts out of my head and I ran after her because I had been such a longtime fan of hers. And um, I, I caught up to her and asked her if we could get a photo together. And, <laughs> and she said, uh, yeah, I really have to pee. Um, <laughs> so if we could just do it as quickly as possible. I snapped the two selfies. I instantly post them. I'm like, I just met one of my idols. And then I think she responded like, oh, I had no idea you were a drag queen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess the eyebrowless uh, <laughs> uh, face didn't give it away. But um and then uh, I don't know. Those moments are uh, it's it, it shrinks your world when when you get to meet an icon and an idol like that. <laughs> it's one of the, like I think that's really one of the fun things: the accessibility to your idols. Uh, once you start <laughs> uh, doing the thing you love doing, you're like, oh, I get to just hang out with you. Like, oh, oh yeah. you're gonna, oh, you're gonna ask me to do a show for you. This is like. <laughs> I thought you should just spit on me and throw me away. That's what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> but here it I really, am it really being blows respected. Your mind. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask specifically, um, as a comedian and as someone who um, writes adult comedy, what was it like? Writing for SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> How did that differ from your usual? Uh... Uh, well, first of all, that job was just X. Well, I was trying very hard to find a writing job at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. And I just so happened to live uh, next door to somebody who was an exec at South Park and just also just became the showrunner for one season of SpongeBob SquarePants where they're like, we're going to do, because they, they don't usually do a writer's room. They just do storyboard and then, figure out the story from there um so they're like they want writers and he just walked up to us one day he's like you guys want to write for spongebob squarepants and we were like <laughs> okay that's how hollywood works <laughs> <laughs> and so there i was i had a te- i had a, a email from nick loading the next day and that's how i got my first ever writing job was through just being neighbors with somebody <laughs> um and it was it's such a different uh animation is a weird because uh, anything can happen and you have to make every second entertaining because you're it's for children like children have short attention spans so it's like you can't just make him just reach into his pocket he has to reach into his pocket stick his head in look around there's a whole other world in there and then he has to stick his head back out and it's sort of like it's 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 uh anything is anything is possible so that kind of almost makes like the list of things in your head even bigger <laughs> of what you yeah. can make happen um oh, yeah but it, it was, kind of it feels was, like with animation, what I love about animation as someone who watches, I pretty much exclusively watch cartoons and comedies. You know, I have a hard time um, dealing with anything that's too dramatic <laughs> that doesn't involve superpowers. You know, I have the um, same affliction. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. What I love about animation is that you can tell real stories and you can you can tell stories that matter but you're not limited to what you can pull off in reality. You know, to pull off fantastical things with um, with live action stuff requires a huge budget, you know? But when you're working with animation, you can say a dragon comes in and, and burns the place to the ground 
And, you know, you just have to draw that, you know. <laughs> I mean, animation is extremely expensive, don't get me wrong, but you're not limited to the confines of reality. Um, was that freeing as a writer? Or <laughs> um, It was, it, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's fun uh, to just sort of be like, anything can happen. Um, but then it's also like, Finding out what kids think is funny is always such a very specific thing because you want to you want to definitely make sure it doesn't go over their head. Yeah, uh, and you want to make sure, but you also don't want to make it. You also want to be entertained by it yourself as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and SpongeBob is just it does that. So that's the kind of like that was probably as as good of a time as I had. I was also the very difficult because I was just playing within a field of two worlds <laughs> and making sure yeah. I can weave them together. Um, and yeah, I would. I don't know if I can write for animation again because it's it is definitely uh, a lot more a lot more uh, a lot more possibilities than I than I can never <laughs> than I can creatively <laughs> pour out of my head. <laughs> yeah, I um I can't imagine creating work for for kids because um you know I certainly didn't get into drag because my um sense of humor is family friendly, and it's been this ongoing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thing to get used to that I have a very young fan base now and lots of that's thanks to social media yeah. and and accessibility for entertainment these days um but I you know when people say like is this appropriate for kids jinx I want to say it sure isn't and I don't <laughs> know why that's a standard I'm being held up to it's like yeah. I love that young people enjoy my work because Young people should be exposed to new walks of life as early as possible. You know, the early, the younger you are, that you start realizing that the world is a diverse and um, multifaceted place. Like the better experience you're going to have as an adult, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but at the like... same time, I don't think it's my responsibility <laughs> to make sure that like everything I do is appropriate for kids because those kids should have some adults in their life telling them what's not appropriate for them. No. Their TV comes with a parental control. Their internet exactly. comes with a parental control. Whatever they decide to set their life, like if you don't want to monitor what your kids are watching, that is on you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I also, as somebody who grew up in a household where I was allowed to watch whatever I wanted mm-hmm. uh, and no one was paying attention, I was fine. <laughs> it's yeah, fine. Same. Like it's, I mean, it's I watched <laughs> plenty of things that I shouldn't have. You know, <laughs> Death Becomes Her was my favorite movie at six years old. That's and such I a was, good movie. I would stand there and put my clothes on backwards so that I could say, my ass! <laughs> I can see my ass! And that was six years old. <laughs> I think my father bought me Basic Instinct when I was 11. Uh, that's the kind of life that I was, I was allowed to watch whatever, like I was, and also they didn't even relegate even like queer material because they didn't pay attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, I got to see Paris is Burning in 1992 and I don't know how. I'm very glad I got away with it. <laughs> and like when like Tu Wong Fu came out the, on VHS, I was able to rent it out, rent it as many times as I like. So it was one of those things where I feel like that exposure was healthy for me. Yeah, <laughs> it just made me more secure uh, yeah. later in life when I needed it to be. <laughs> the only time that I um that my mother ever tried to stop me from watching something was Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I think she knew, you know, like um, she already knew I was queer at that point. And I think she knew that once I saw that movie, um, 
I would definitely be a drag queen, you know? (laughs) She always worried about me being a drag queen um, because she worried about my safety. That's the story she says, you know, and I have to accept that at face value. But um, so we watched Rocky Horror together, and I think she realized halfway through, what the hell was I worried about? This movie's from the 70s and everything (laughs) that seems so scandalous in it is just commonplace nowadays, you know? Yeah, it's... (laughs) It's a really, uh, it's a very subtle movie. It's not very, <laughs> not it's the sexual sexualness is not very overt. <laughs> not compared to like what's on TV Mm-mm. nowadays. <laughs> I um, I I I really admire the work you've done as a comedian and as a writer. Is it safe to assume that throughout quarantine you've focused on writing and um, have you been doing digital stand-up shows? <laughs> um, I did a few uh, and it's honestly, it's not fun to tell a joke <laughs> to no laughter. Uh, exactly. <laughs> it really isn't. <laughs> it's it's not fun to perform and then slowly close your laptop <laughs> and just stand and there the, with yourself. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then like, and then where's the dressing room of people full yeah. of like uh, post-show discussions you know the, that's the thing is that that's the aftermath the, after the show is the fun part like it's yeah. the, the winding down being with the other with your peers that have also performed that night and just and just talking shit <laughs> <laughs> swapping more stories yeah swapping more <laughs> stories making mistakes uh <laughs> complaining about the venue yeah. <laughs> Those it's... those privileges we have as entertainers, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I think my, I think it's really hard for me to enjoy something unless I have something to pick apart afterwards, you know. <laughs> oh, hands down. Like I just there's I want to complain about the sound. I want to complain about the green room. Why was why did they have only Diet Pepsi? Why wasn't regular Pepsi <laughs> what are not they an option? To say? <laughs> <laughs> now. Um, as as amazing as your 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 career is, let's get to know some of the intimate Solomon <laughs> Giorgio. Oh, the intimate Solomon Giorgio. Oh, is what she was, here? <laughs> what was coming out like for you? Um, I coming out for me was um, it was difficult. It's, I guess I would say it was. I don't think it was that difficult for me because I was very spiteful. Uh, <laughs> You couldn't wait to stick it to him. Like I was so happy to do it to my parents. Like, <laughs> like I. It's did honestly, you wait for like you didn't clean up your room? You're grounded. Grounded. Like it was so definitely what? I'm gay. <laughs> like, Take that. Like I'm gay. I'm not going to college. Fuck all of y'all. I'm leaving <laughs> this house. And I had because like I had such a great support network with my friends and my siblings. And I was in Seattle, uh, in the, and then just in a nice little suburban area. That was just like, I had, I had guardians outside of my own parents. That sort of made it, made kind of gave, gave me the like I I was comfortable enough in a good enough space to be like, fuck you two, uh, figure yeah. out your figure out your shit. I'm gone. <laughs> and honestly, it's been keeping me going since. I don't even. I might. It just might just be spite. <laughs> <laughs> very attracted to the opposite sex. I would date women if my parents weren't so homophobic. (laughs) That's really funny. Um, (laughs) um, What, if you feel comfortable sharing, what were um, 
What were specific challenges you faced coming out as a queer person of color? Um, for me, I just have a lot of uh, social anxiety. I always feel like I take up, I feel like I stick out and take up space sometimes. Uh, and I think that's sort of like, especially like in a city like Seattle and when you're going out for the first time and it's predominantly white space and you just don't feel attractive and no one's sort of making like, and no, one, no one's assuring you of your attractiveness because you're not the most dateable uh, person in the scene. It's sort of um, like, it definitely gave me a lot of hangups uh, and I was definitely uh, frustrated as, as when I was younger, but I think now it's, it's sort of just like, there's sort of, um, especially being a young man, you think so many things are owed to you in my head uh, that I definitely kind of broke apart and kind of pushed away. And I was definitely, definitely had issues with masculinity and presenting as femme. And that was also a big issue that I also had to overcome. But I think there's a lot of it was through standup was a better understanding of myself as a queer person and being a better ally within my own community. Um, and just sort of also embracing uh, my own femininity and uh, just kind of breaking away from a lot of the stuff that I put pressure onto myself when I was in my early twenties. That's Yeah. I um, I've been thinking a lot about lately. You know, you say you came out in Seattle, I came out in Portland. These are relatively safe cities to come out in. You know, and it's a huge privilege to to live in a blue bubble, um, coming out as a queer young person. Um, but then I've been thinking about what effects I've still dealt with, even though I came out in a relatively ideal setting you know I, I i was in a safe place i was surrounded by other queer people my age i had safe spaces to go to as a young queer person because there was a queer hangout center i went to there was a queer all-ages dance club i went to i always felt like i had a community um and yet i noticed these things lately um you know i i always knew that i didn't identify as male there have been times in my life where I've really questioned whether I identify as female and the answer is always not quite. <laughs> and it wasn't until my mid twenties that I came out as non-binary and kind of found the missing piece, you know, but I see myself now in this really safe place in this really confident place with myself. And I still walk down the street with my head down slouching I still like I have all this back pain because of how I walk in public. And I'm like, why do I walk like this? And I realized that because I've always been visibly queer, I could dress as masculinely as any other person. But the feminist uh, <laughs> shines from within me. I feel like I've always stuck out in a way that attracted negative attention out in public. And my response to that was to try to shrink myself yeah. as much as possible. And now I'm actively working against slouching and keeping <laughs> my head down and, and allowing myself to take up space in public areas. Yeah. Because you should. I'm not as scared about sticking out. And if, and if I do stick out and someone has a problem with it, I realize the problem is theirs, not mine. But these things have long-term effects on us, whether, whether we had an ideal coming out or not. 
um, have you noticed any long-term effects or, or, or conditioning your work against um, these days? Definitely. I definitely <laughs> can see, like if, like, like if in the safety of my own home, I, 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 gender expression is whatever I choose it to be. Um, but there's always like whenever I'm out and about where I kind of, I have the benefit of being uh, more mask appearing. So that's for, I just kind of, don't really I very like there's times where I do definitely I'm like is it is this the most safest place for me to cross my legs or <laughs> or yeah. like and I think that sort of um I've definitely overcome a lot uh and I think it's it's definitely handy just knowing that I'm just I'm also like I feel like I, I try to be like you know what you're a giant I'm because I'm six foot four and I'm <laughs> and like what what is anybody in the in that space gonna do to me <laughs> like I'm <laughs> Like I just I've 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 been making myself feel small when I'm truly the biggest person in the room. And I need to not do that. So, in an effort to get to know you better, um, what's your relationship to spirituality? Um. That's very. I like. I don't like. I. I like hearing about things. I don't. I don't <laughs> technically believe in anything. Um, I'm like, if somebody has a crystal, I'd probably be fine with it to being told and explained to me. Um, will I retain the information? Very, very good chance not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's. I, I tend to do that. Like, because I was. I was raised very, very religious, uh, and so I sort of uh, all the work that I did to just. Uh, dismantle that aspect uh, of myself I kind of was like don't, it's, it was sort of like a scorched earth yeah. <laughs> <laughs> procedure so that so like there's no I don't know if anything the, I don't think the seeds of spirituality can grow there yet but they, they don't they, they're not denied to exist <laughs> I, I I think I hear you loud and clear. I was raised very casually religious, but what was taught to me was the sense of guilt. Um, you know, I, I come from a family that were holiday Catholics, and then we also have, you know, like a rich tapestry of, uh, of heritage that we didn't know about until until late in life um you know i i found out about jewish heritage late in life and i was like late you know your 20s <laughs> so late but i was like oh maybe this is something i should explore yeah. and then and then i was kind of like it's too late i don't care about anything <laughs> now you know i, can't, I don't care yeah. can't set up shop uh it's, the mall's closed i can't <laughs> And and that's sort of like I like I love I love learning about things and I like obtaining as much knowledge as possible from things. But uh, it's just yeah, I like it's just there's my family's so cruelly logical and rational and even expect, except for when it came to God, which was very weird. Uh, <laughs> my my mom just is a, like very like everything has to make sense to her. It has to if it doesn't, it it's, it does it you get it out of her face. Yet religion makes perfect sense to her, and I'm just like, how? That's, that's a very interesting dichotomy. I, my environment was very different. Everything was very much based in emotion, and very. Uh, I, I grew up in a very superstitious household, and I always say that I was raised by a coven of witches who 
identified as Catholic because <sighs> to say they were witches was too scary, you know, <laughs> yes. because of the Catholic influence. What they were doing was focusing on the rituals of Catholicism and and the um, emotional aspects of it. And then in many instances, um, you know, my mom would say like, don't practice witchcraft. Don't mess with Dungeons and Dragons. And yet she was casting spells and and um, carrying around good luck charms and stuff. And I'm like, I don't I don't get where the logic in all of this is. <laughs> so I very much nowadays like proudly identify as a witch, but I also deal with the the, the Catholic conditioning mm-hmm. I was raised with. <laughs> so you were raised by a witch not to be a witch, and it I ended was, up being a witch. Yet, here I am, <laughs> very witchy. <laughs> Do you have um, a, a celebrity crush? I don't really do celebrity crushes. I don't like I'm very um I like having crushes on people that I see in real life. <laughs> um but if but if for the sake of this conversation, if someone were to knock on your door right now purely um to have sex with you. <laughs> <laughs> Just show up, have sex with you and leave. Who would you want that person to be? Well, I have like I remember my two crushes, my first two, my my celebrity crushes when I was younger, um, mm-hmm. and that was um, Omri Katz in Hocus Pocus, <laughs> and uh, Jaimin Hansu in the Love Will Never Do Without You video, uh, Janet Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> so if either of those two showed up at those, well, no, Omri Katz was a teenager. I don't want to have sex with him. <laughs> I take That's that back. Something- you know, we, it's 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 funny about growing old um, uh, that you you never let go of certain passions that you had. But then it's like, you know, I don't want to sleep with current day no. Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> it's like so but the teenager inside of me still wants to sleep with the teenager. Jonathan Taylor yeah. Thomas. If, can, if we can both go back in time and get young again. Uh, that would be great. But Jaimin Hansu right now, if he walked in, I would have sex with him immediately. He still looks perfectly the same uh, and maybe even better since I first uh, <laughs> fell in love with him. <laughs> I, um, I'm just always down for Pete Davidson, Eric Andre, Andy Samberg. It's funny that all of my biggest crushes are also like kind of goofy doofuses like yeah. See, there's something about the funny nerd personality that does it for me a lot <laughs> yeah these are my peers i want nothing to do with them <laughs> <laughs> i truly the easiest way to to make me stop liking someone is to tell me they're a comedian <laughs> <laughs> that that makes perfect sense i think there was a time where i wouldn't have considered sleeping with another drag queen just because of the innate sense of competition yeah. and I think that seal was broken for me um, I I had sex with a drag queen in New York um, and we met on Grinder, and neither of us told the other one that we were drag queens and then the next morning waking up in the daylight and seeing their room for the first time in the light and it's like <laughs> there's pictures of them in drag everywhere yeah. and I'm like oh you're a queen and they were like yeah Jinx I'm a drag queen and I was <laughs> like you just drag named me oh shit we totally <laughs> <laughs> you totally knew exactly who I was, and here I thought I was having some anonymous hookup, and and lo and behold, and now we're sisters, and now 
like, well, what's the point in putting any of those um, those um, yeah. restrictions on? <laughs> That's the thing is that it's, it's just becomes such a sibling aspect to it. Like it's like you're, I can't, <laughs> That's, yeah, I can't fuck my brothers. It's not <laughs> not normal, and it's it's and also it's like there's not even like it becomes the competition part of it. Like it's it seems like fun, but like when you're doing better than somebody else. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not fun at all. It is, it's, it becomes very toxic very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, um, I feel like, uh, you know, we all, um, we all find our checks and balances with success. I, I deal with, um, what I call gay jealousy, Uh, (laughs) specifically gay jealousy, not queer jealousy. It's when another person uh, assigned male at birth becomes successful, even though I don't identify as male. Um, Another person who was assigned male at birth becoming successful just immediately um, sparks rage in me, whether I, (laughs) whether I think it's warranted or not, you know, I'm, I'm constantly like, um, I see, especially if they're a pretty boy, especially if they're really pretty and especially if they get famous doing something that's almost drag, but not quite drag. And I'm like, oh, it's because you're pretty. And it's because at the end of the day, you take the drag off and that's how people identify you. And and you, you, everything's just so easy for you because you're so gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've, no, believe me, I've, I've had that jealousy before. It's just like, you just showed up, didn't you? That's all you had to do. <laughs> you're in the open mic in 2007 just telling goddamn George Bush jokes to nobody. <laughs> George Bush jokes. <laughs> Nobody. Oh, I love that. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. Jealousy just happens. It's it's unavoidable. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's kind of it's it's very specific to the more successful you become in your career because it's it's like uh, I just like I'm not even mad at the person at all. I'm just mad at myself. <laughs> yeah, for being jealous. Like <laughs> you did nothing wrong. That's what's so annoying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's what's annoying is like. Um, uh, just how dare you not fuck up? <laughs> how dare you be so polite and yeah. and and genuinely nice to be around that people want to give you opportunities? <laughs> yeah, but I also know that if I got that level of success at their age, I would have completely fucked it up <laughs> in every <Yeah>. possible way. <laughs> well, and and it's I, I don't feel jealous of people who are who are monsters because I look at them and I'm like, well, you're a monster. I don't want to, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> have any part of that. But when it's like someone who's genuinely funny, genuinely talented, objectively attractive, and then you hear that they're just a delight to work with. And mm-hmm. then you find out they're 10 years younger than you. How do you not fly into pink rage then? <laughs> well, I think it's also just kind of, you also have to remember that you set the groundwork a lot of us set the groundwork for that sort of accessibility for those kind of talents. So it's essentially they it's uh, it's our work. <laughs> We're, they're us. <laughs> We're them. <laughs> I, I do um, have my mantra for my my gay jealousy um, is as long as the opportunity is going to someone who deserves it, then I'm not going to be upset. So if I'm up for a role and then that role goes to, say, a trans person of color, 
then more power to that person. Like if it goes to another um, white person and they happen to be cis and um, masculine presenting and objectively gorgeous, it's easy to be mad at them because it's like, (laughs) you get everything! (laughs) But when it goes to a a fellow drag queen, you know, I'm I'm always upset when a drag role goes to a non-drag queen. So if a drag role goes to a fellow drag queen, whoever it is, I'm like, more power to you as long as it's someone from the sisterhood, you know, actually portraying a yeah. drag queen on television. Because there's enough talented drag queens out there that the roles don't need to be going to um, a cis pretty boy who's never done drag a day in his life, you know? <laughs> it should never, ever, 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 ever do that at all. <laughs> it's really... Because uh, it's like... Oh, so it's like that's... Because that's kind of cheating. Somebody else yeah. is going to do his makeup? <laughs> oh, someone else is going to do your makeup? And you think that drag can be taught to you in an afternoon? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry. It comes with a lifetime of feeling horrible. <laughs> you know, and like... Also, it's like no one should, no one's first experience with a wig should be televised. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good point. Um, I'm going to ask you one last this, uh, this um, question. Just answer from your heart. What is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, um, Jump of the Line, Harry Belafonte. Uh, okay, so that is one of my, it's not my go-to karaoke song, but I put that song, if if I don't know what to play, I, I have a theory about this song, and it has, to this day, yet to be disproven. I always talk DJs at clubs into playing that song, even if it's not a club that would normally play <laughs> Jump in the Line. I can... Um, I can talk them into it just so that they can see the social experiment of a conga line will yes. form no matter what the, <laughs> on <laughs> no average, matter what somebody the will start a conga line. And it's, I think I've like, I've, I've, I think that's why I love singing it as well, because I've mm-hmm. seen conga lines perform. <laughs> I've seen people who weren't paying attention to karaoke the whole time, perk up and look at me. Yeah. Uh, and it's also the only way I can sing is within, uh, is in an accent. Uh, <laughs> Because uh, my actual singing voice is truly um, a terrible journey uh, for other people to experience. Uh, <laughs> well, that's wonderful to know about you. And now I'm going to test that theory. Do you have anything to plug? Anything you'd like to promote? Um, I definitely want people to watch the final season of uh, Shrill. The, that would make me the happiest person in the world. Is <laughs> everybody watching it to the point that uh, people felt bad for canceling it in the first place? <laughs> And um, where can we find you on social media? Um, I'm Solomon Giorgio all across the board. Instagram, uh, Twitter. Um, I'm usually saying something completely obnoxious and relevant uh, about race. and, <laughs> and Obnoxious and relevant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a lot meaner online than I am in real life. <laughs> I, I, I find this to be true. Uh, <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Solomon, for joining us today. Um, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk oh. to you. You're a very lovely person. Thank you And for thanks to me. all of you for listening to Hijinks here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday. So make sure to search for Hijinks on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at The Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon 
everywhere else. Um, that's spelled J-I-N-K-X. You have to use the K because I paid extra for it, and K is very expensive, isn't it, Solomon? Yes, indeed. I'll see you next Wednesday for more hijinks. Forever. To listen to hijinks ad-free and one day early, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com slash plus. Make sure to follow at Forever Dog Team and at Mom Podcasts on social and rate and review hijinks five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hijinks is produced by Forever Dog and Moguls of Media, a.k.a. Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, produced by Big Dipper, editing and sound design by Will Pitts, executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.